This is Tom Darling, your host for Conversations with Classic Boats, the podcast that brings you the stories that classic boats, past and present, tell to our marine enthusiasts. Welcome to the last episode of Season 1 of Conversations with Classic Boats. We wrap up this season with a tale of two boats during these very challenging times. For these two classic cousins, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. That is how the career of classic boats can be. One boat, the rock star design of the 1950s, winner of three successive Bermuda races, never done before or after. The other, the country mouse, content to ply the waters of southern New England, fortunate to have passionate and careful owners who, in the meantime, collected plenty of silver in classic series racing. The boats are Finisterre and Fidelio, Sparkman and Stevens' designs of the mid-1950s, and with a shape that influenced American racing boats for a generation, bridging the long, deep boats of the international rule and the new fin keel and spade rudder boats that came in the late 1960s. In their day, Finisterre and Fidelio were radical. Even today, their innovations in design and rigging command our attention. This is the story of the SNS twins, the story of Finisterre and Fidelia. But first, our sponsors for season one and beyond. These are the pioneers that got behind conversations with classic boats earlier in 2020. Windcheck Media with WinCheck Magazine covering New York to the Cape, reaching tens of thousands with its email campaigns. The November-December issue of WinCheck Magazine contains the article on our latest podcast, Man and Their Dinghies. Find WinCheck at your local marine supplier or yacht club, coming out right in time for Thanksgiving, and we all have a lot to give thanks for, for sure. And... A shout-out to Mad Martha at Team One Newport, who has been showing our proud logo in her weekly emails to Team One's dedicated following. Scroll through her email blast, and there it is, the Conversations logo. The man with the mic talking to boats. Martha is debuting new lines of Scanda clothing to go with fall season items to extend the outdoor dining season into winter. Brava, Martha. You're doing patriotic duty in Rhode Island, keeping the grub flowing, as we all dine al fresco and hopefully not freezing. And thank you to all of you who have improved me as a podcaster. I promise my line producer, Ned Darling, that I will enunciate and watch my explosives, my B's, P's, and D's. Great thanks to Bonnie Levinson, ace podcast coach of The Moth, the granddaddy of all storytelling sites. Happy 10th birthday, the moth. Always playing on NPR. It's all about pace and voice, says Bonnie. Thanks, coach. And thanks to you listeners and your pictures submitted, and you're reminding me that I have to adjust my sound so as not to blow out you listeners participating on your car radios. We're working to overcome the limitations forced on us by the production facilities under pandemic conditions, but give us your feedback. And this episode is the best example of listeners getting involved and serving up great ideas for future episodes. The SNS Twins, the story of Finisterre and Fidelio is exactly that. A big shout out to Carol and Hall O'Connor of Noank, Connecticut, for the introductions to Fidelio and its longtime owner, Chuck Townsend. We will hear from all of them later. All I want for the holidays is for you to remember to subscribe so you get the next episodes automatically. We're working on a more convenient way for Android users to sign up as well. When we break the next thousand subscribers barrier, I commit to you dedicated subscribers that Mad Martha at Team One and I will conspire to make some swag happen. This episode is inspired by someone I met once in my life, 
but who is legendary for his enthusiasm and joie de vivre as a pioneer in the post-World War II boating world, in addition to being a world-beating offshore sailor. This individual is Carlton Mitchell, the pathfinder of blue water cruising in the second half of the 20th century. Owner and captain of Finisterre, one of the most influential designs of the 20th century. 2020 is the 110th anniversary of Carlton's birth and the 13th of his passing at the age 96, exiting as he came, an old salt living on the edge of the water. And as usual, we turn to the designs and the stories of the boats themselves, Finisterre and Fidelio. One of these two boats is famous, Finisterre. Who doesn't know of the little 38-foot Owen Stevens boat that slew the traditional dragons of mid-1950s yacht racing in the Dash to the Onion Badge, the Bermuda Race? She won not once, not twice, but three times in a row, starting in 1956. The yachting elite must have seen her bobbing in Hamilton Harbor until they couldn't stand it anymore. And then there was the anonymous twin, two years younger, technically a cousin that most boats in the modern sailing world never saw until 2008, when its modern owner fell in love, restored, and campaigned her for over 10 years. This pair had one set of Owen Stevens plans in common. In the photo section of Conversations with Classic Boats, you can see an example of them, line drawings and sail plans. Their two crews both sailed the same design tens of thousands of miles in virtually the same wooden yawls, built two years apart and in boatyards 4,000 miles apart, but otherwise virtually identical. These SNS twins are SNS 39s, technically. And Fidelio is the master of the CRF rule, CYA champion, with dozens of trips to the podium for inshore keel wins. They have had very different career paths, these two y'alls under 40. Technically, they're not twins. They would have to be born and launched together. They are cousins, and we count there have been at least five other boats built to the Finister design. But the two cousins remind me of the show from the golden age of TV. For me, a boomer of the TV age, they are the boating characters in the 1960s TV show, The Patty Duke Show. In that comedy, Patty played two versions of herself at once. The Park Avenue ingenue and the country mouse, Finisterre and Fidelio. Finisterre, the offshore rock star and blue water cruiser, Fidelio, the quiet boat, turning heads in coastal New England. From the 1950s to today, there are two extraordinary boats here, leading different lives, having different sailing experiences, and enjoying, ultimately, different career paths. But let's set the scene for our first boat, Finisterre. How did she come to be the third child of a sailing personality? with that charismatic sailor, the first with a robust media personality in the sailing world, an influencer in our terms today, an ambassador of the seas in his day. Let's start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. Let's set the scene in the West Indies after World War II. For more than 200 years following the American Revolution and the roiling naval wars of Britain and France, the Caribbean was referred to as the West Indies. It slumbered in its plantation history and isolated tourist scene. Cruising in sailboats in a modern sense did not exist. Few sailors had a chance to take the taste of the region's trade winds and blue waters. Sailing visitors were mainly on large yachts, epitomized by the somewhat cheesy sailing equivalent of the modern cruise ship, the Windjammer. The scene was Pirates of the Caribbean, Bad rum drinks with little umbrellas, not the exhilarating sailing experience in pristine sailing conditions that we know today. But one individual really changed that. 
He was the son of a doctor in New Orleans with no interest in boats and started sailing with an uncle. Early, though, he had his mission defined. He told his mother, I want to sail and I want to write about it. Simple. Classic. His name was Carlton Mitchell. Mitchell dropped out of college in Ohio in the late 1920s at the beginning of the Great Depression. There followed a series of jobs, including working in a Minnesota lumberyard and eventually selling women's underwear in Macy's in Manhattan. The drifting ended when he joined a friend on a voyage from Norfolk to Nassau in the Bahamas. John Rosmanier, the author and long friend, said in a Soundings article in 2007, The boat almost sank on the way. It was a dreadful trip. He had the wits scared out of him, but he loved it. Unquote. When he came back from Nassau, where his own personal photos always lovingly depicted the scene, whether it be on one of his boats or a windy star regatta, he tried to write travel stories. No luck, no takers. Someone said, you need pictures. He scraped together enough to buy a camera and darkroom equipment and set it up in his shoebox Manhattan apartment. This I can identify with the aha moment. I heard this type of advice before I did the podcast. They said, you know about boats. You like to talk. You should have a podcast. And off you go, knowing nothing. Today, Carlton Mitchell would be like a surfing chronicler. He'd be a rad YouTuber. Directly after 1945, after the war, when he'd served in the U.S. Navy as a photography instructor, the amateur photographer who had spent the Depression bouncing around the marine world, he needed a mission. He got married, and he got himself an old boat in Annapolis, home of the Navy. The name of the old boat was Carib and her cruising ground started in Trinidad and extended north to the Bahamas. For the better part of 20 years, this Aldenex schooner, formerly called Malabar, was his ride. Then, and in its successor, a 58-foot Rhodes design called Caribbee, Carlton Mitchell transformed himself into the Pied Piper for Caribbean sailing. This Caribbean American Odysseus crisscrossed what he called the West Indies, what today we call the Windwards, the Lewards, the BVI, the Bahamas. He traveled light aboard his boats, no scuba tanks, no paddle boards, no windsurfers, like the floating motor palaces that traverse the Caribbean winters these days. He had clothes, a camera and a tripod, a wife, and an eye for the picaresque. He took not just postcard shots, but the photos of a sailing anthropologist about the people and their boats and their weather, from the booming cumulus clouds to the endless horizons, to the green flash. He was not a solo sailor. He had his friends and his wife and more friends. He was a highly social sailor. We'll return to Carlton because his passion for the visual sense of sailing reminded me of my own story back in the 1960s. As a sailing kid with boating professionals in the family, I studied boats like most kids studied baseball cards or racing cars. I prided myself on my boat recognition. On my family cruises, I prized my ability to spot and name a given boat first. Vidiot Savant of Boats. Carlton was that in the late teen 1940s in the Caribbean. He had worked during the war in the Naval Photo Archives. He could pick a nautical image out of a lineup and it would always be the right one. Thousands of pictures came from that imagination from 1944 to the 21st century. For years, the yachting world saw his vision of nautical in yachting, in Sports Illustrated, and in his series of books, inspired by his own post-war exploration by cruising what was still called the West Indies. Carlton's friend and yacht historian, John Rumenier, put him in his place in yachting history. 
In an October 2007 article following Mitchell's passing in July of that year, he wrote, quote, If you were to add up the 10 most important people in sailing over the last 100 years, he'd be in it. And not just because he won three Bermuda races. He was really a three-sport star. All-star sailor, writer, and photographer. He was the greatest yachting writer of his time. Unquote. Through both his writing for National Geographic, Yachting, and SI, I grew up on his America's Cup coverage, and I reveled in the books that I read. He was a blue water personality, really the first in the post-war era. When you look at his photos, you realize he must have taken inspiration from the WPA photographers of the time, back from the 20s, Steichen. From the 30s, look at Walker Evans, Edward Weston, Ansel Adams. He had been in New York when it was a hotbed of photography ferment before World War II. In the jumbled inventory of more than 20,000 photos at the Mystic Seaport archives, there are tourist shots. No people, just scenery, those placid waters, those billowing trade wind clouds. But there are also the native boatyards and watercraft, and even more so, the Antillian people themselves. Every island a unique mix from their past of colonialism, migration, and native culture. His first book, Islands to Windward, exposed the world of the Caribbean as it was evolving from the old style to the self-catering adventure cruising amid islands that had seen very few yachting tourists. He had leapt straight into the West Indies, a region that he eliminated for the new class of big boat sailors that had come along after the war. He was a pioneer. On land, he documented the prosaic details of island life. In his pictures, he took pictures of native craft. There was very rarely a modern boat depicted. In fact, there are usually no boats in the picture, period. He was a marine cowboy out on the great watery plains of the deserted post-war West Indies. Each of his seaboard pictures is of his boat or from his boat. Carib was the first, one of John Alden's schooner-style yawls that could fly on a reach when flying five sails. He was an island junkie, a connoisseur, of anchorages, gunk holes, peaks, and most of all, he was a prolific and exhausting practitioner of marine photography. He was an unconscious professor of an island culture that would be upended by national independent movements during the post-war era when he was visiting their harbors. Politics and independence movements came and went but the gorgeous shell on the beach stayed behind. The Windwards, the Lourdes, the BVI, the Bahamas. All of the beauty, none of the unrest is there. He was like Ansel Adams working in Yosemite. He exhibited the pure joy of depicting the perfect scene. When Carlton died in 2007 at age 96, his family may have looked at what he accumulated more than 2,000, what he called safety negatives or silver prints, as if they'd been made by Ansel Adams or Edward Weston. The collection needed to be preserved, and their decision was to bequeath the portfolio to the Mystic Seaport Museum, along with the reams of notebooks and the prep work for the books that he published beginning in 1947 with Islands to Windward. Check out Conversations with Classic Boats website in the photo section, there are pictures and a listing I did of his books. John Urban, development director for MSM, described to me in email what his own impression was looking at that massive collection for the first time. Quote, I took the deep dive into the collection myself. Too much. End quote. In early 2019, pre-pandemic, John and Chris Freeman, his colleague, had circumvented Florida with a presentation on Carlton Mitchell that included his portfolio. 
they were struck by how the audience connected to those black and white photos. Exactly my impression when I started to pour through the photos and glanced at his cruising guides, a genre that he formed along with other originals like Fessenden Blanchard and his guide to the New England coast. These were magical guides. I realized that I was looking at another pioneer of the outdoor life in Carlton Mitchell. I was looking at John Muir. If I was reading Muir on the Maine woods, it's the same as reading Mitchell on Martinique or Trinidad or the Abacos. Two parts travel guide, one part outdoor philosophy. Mitchell is the John Muir of boating, yachting, blue water cruising, who like Muir defined the genre, the style, and the medium for years to come. Completely out of sequence here in this podcast, uh, I have my one and only story of my encounter in the mid-1970s with Carlton Mitchell. I was the guest of Bill Robinson, the longtime editor of Yachting, Princeton Class of 37, and the honorary chairman of our Friends of Princeton Sailing Group. I periodically met with Bill at the 43rd Street location of the Princeton Club to update him on the team's activities. This particular day, he asked me to stick around as a friend was coming for drinks. I was a college student less than 21. Free drinks sounded good to me. Then, through the revolving door bounds, a mid-sized gentleman in an oldish blazer with a scarf like a turban on his head. I'll admit it was cold out there for someone who hung out in tropics. He strides over to Bill and bear hugs him. Bill's not a small guy. Scarf on head. Carlton, how the hell are you? Great, let's have a drink, was my recollection of the answer. Before I knew it, I was in the Tiger Bar having my first Mount Gay and Tonic and listening to Caribbean and Baltic cruising stories. I got out of there to take the train south, smelling like a Bayesian distillery, my roommate said. This was my introduction to the life, times, and mythology of one Carlton Mitchell, the John Muir of the West Indies sailing scene. And the boat that the world associates with Carlton Mitchell, as we know, is named Finisterre. He liked to name boats after geography, and often ones that ended in some variation of land. The story of Finisterre. And how did this all connect to famous offshore designs of the 1950s? To the Finisteres of the 50s? S&S's equivalent of what Durade and Stormy Weather were to the 1930s. Finisterre in 1954 was not Carlton Mitchell's first boat. In fact, it was his third boat. As we mentioned above, Carib was his first magic carpet for the Antilles, and she was founded by a larger road design, Caribbee. In 1954, Owen Stevens designed Finisterre, but too late for the biennial Bermuda race of that year. She was 38 feet, verging on 39 feet, a center border, and ranks as one of the most significant yachts in the history of the sport. A Seattle blogger that I found at Eskimo.com tells the Finisterre story with great passion. And I quote him, Carlton Mitchell, the owner of Finisterre, is the author of the book Islands to Windward. He had developed a sailing style that was not in concert with the era of the deep-keeled, long-ended, windward-lured-oriented racers. He had previously owned a 58-foot centerboarder, the Rhodes Design Caribbean. Mitchell wanted to prove something by racing. With Finisterre, he humiliated hundreds of deep, fixed-keel boats by holding the honor mooring spot off the Bermuda Yacht Club at the time when bigger, deep-keel vessels had dominated racing. Prior to the build, in my own quotes, in Peterson's in Old Saybrook, Connecticut, Mitchell put his ideas in articles that were criticized, putting him in the awkward position of potential publicized failure 
Finisterre was built at the height of custom yacht design. His notion of a vessel that would be like having your cake and eating it too, that would be small enough for single-handed, comfortable enough for luxurious cruising, able to cross oceans, and fast enough to win races, was not a popular one among the all-boats-are-compromises mindset. The face that the vessel would be a centerboarder undoubtedly angered many who had worked for years to discredit this boat type. Bill Robinson, in his book Legendary Yachts, relates the story of Stanley Rosenfeld, the photographer, who was following Finisterre for a photo shoot, noticing little of the creaking that he listened for from the helm of his subjects to identify just the right distance and angle for good photos. Robinson believes the lack of that noise was part of the secret to the vessel, and so do I, writes the blogger. Not that anything about Finisterre was secret, it all being public record owing to Mitchell's wishing to prove something and writing about it. Bill Robinson himself had a centerboard-designed boat, as I knew, called it him Fibcon, I believe. A reverse sheer beamy sloop he acquired before he settled on his island-hopping traditional fiberglass cutter. Pat Royce, in the 2000 issue of Royce Sailing, notes that Mitchell used the swing keel, as they called it in the 50s, for steering. And I quote, The centerboard is down all the way when beating to windward in light breeze. As the wind increases, the centerboard is raised sufficiently to trim the rudder to reduce weather helm. There you have it. This theory of the centerboarder was to dominate auxiliary sailboat design for a generation until it yielded to the spade rudder and fin keel of the classic Cal 40, which we will take up in a future session. Returning to Bill Robinson's theory of Mitchell's success, Bill listed many reasons for Finisterre's success, ranging from Mitchell's exhaustive knowledge of weather to winches, but he doesn't connect the centerboard dots as a reason for the success. Fact is, retracting foils help vessels to surf a plane. Finisterre in the ocean was able to surf the storm fronts and better their betters. She was greatly imitated by other builders, and those imitations eventually led to rule changes, which reduced the success of the type. Myself and my sailing family of six stuffed into 30-foot boats in the 1960s. We sailed these boats in the term of this legacy. Moderate displacement, centerboard designs. Great for the shoal patches of Awakoit Bay, for the shifting sands of Menemsha, for crossing the bars on Nantucket Sound, or for tucking into shoal corners of Block Island's Great Salt Pond. The centerboard was a bit of magic, taking you where others couldn't go. My good friend Rod Johnstone, co-founder of J-Boats, knows something about breakthrough boats like Finisterre, beginning with his own J-24 in 1977. Go back and read my encounter on the J-24 back in episode one on Dolphin. He grew up in Stonington, Connecticut, with a harbor full of centerboard derivatives from the Finisterre lines. In fact, five years ago, he designed his own, called the J-95. He puts the Finisterre design in perspective. Yeah, the legacy of the... Uh of the Finisterre was the reason why it fascinated me so much is I got to, first of all, I got to know a lot of those boats because uh, I wasn't really involved in Morsi at all, but I, there were a lot of people around us who were. The, the original Trina uh, actually, uh, the Marionette, which is all sure. down in Niagara, Yep. by uh, Ron Peralt, and he's, I still communicate with him, but he, he has that Sandy Van Zandt, I think, on one. And we had a lot of Dolphin 24s around, yep. which, which are always the... Uh, sure. And I was impressed with how those boats sailed. And, and then, they, and of course, the other boats that were popular, uh, the other boat that was popular was the uh, Tartan 27, right. which is also an S&S boat. Sure. And so on. I got to sail on those, and then... We had a lot of people, and, and um, the whole keel centerboard thing was a big, big time here in Stonington because 
course, first of all, my uncle, you know, Kayagi Nielsen was the designer of choice for all the local sailors here. Ron has a rich sense of design history. When you read Carlton Mitchell's comments, um, he seemed to kind of resent that the establishment thought he was cheating in some way. You know, that he had an outlaw boat or, you know, an illegal boat. What what, what was that all well, about? The, well, I think what happened was there was, was that the, uh, the CCA rule uh, favored, I mean, you know, the, in some ways favored the uh, Skeel Center Board. And it, it was very generous with uh, giving credits for a shallow draft. Okay. And okay. I, and, but, and, and then what happened was these guys, the guys like Ike uh, Nielsen and Bill Shaw and, and and the other person, which I was my favorite, was uh, George uh, Cuthbertson. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cuthbertson and Cassian. Uh, they, they were the ones that really figured out how to design a shallow draft boat with a centerboard, you know, keel centerboard, that was a really good sailboat. Rod knows this boat type very well, both from his own design history and his own experience. But but as a naval architect, I mean, as a, as a person who's drawn some of the most uh, iconic boats that I can think of, what is it about this design? I mean, what how does it work? Well, what, what, what it is, what I noticed, what, I'm just speaking to my own experience. Sure. I've, I've, raced, I've raced two the two boats I've raced the most and knew the best was the CNC Corvette, mm-hmm. uh, designed by uh, George Cuthbertson, mm-hmm. and, and the uh, Augie Nielsen custom 38-and-a-half-footer named Alabet, was owned by Bob Sellers in Stonington, and I raced that boat a few times. Mm-hmm. And, and we always did well, even after he stopped racing, and I got to race it once, and we still won, even with a big, solid cruising prop on the thing and the last race it was in was in 1968 and um, and the thing the thing about those boats was um, just as a generic thing just from my experience with those particular boats was that first of all you needed a you needed breeze they, they weren't they weren't the upland you Actually, upwind, you needed breeze. Reaching and running, you didn't need breeze. In fact, it was almost better if you didn't have a lot of breeze because, especially in reaching, because those shallow draft boats, once, if you got heavy air reaching, they wouldn't get, you had to shorten sail too quickly. I mean, basically, what happened is the uh, the boat would heel over and the rudder wouldn't work, you know. Got it. And and the way that would be transferred to the helmsman, you know, transferred. Sure. Related to the helmsman was that it was felt like you had a lot of weather helm. Got it. All of a sudden, you get a huge amount of helm with the boat heel over, and I had, you weren't really getting weather helm from balance. You were just getting uh, less rudder efficiency, though, but rudder just ventilating because it was so shallow when mm-hmm. you heel over. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and, and so the boats were awesome upwind in a breeze, and because all well, the centerboards were just flat plate. For the most part, I don't know if I don't know if. Um, well, yeah, I mean, had, had a shape. Finisterre had, you know, Finisterre had a board that just looked like a looked like a beetle cat board, right? It was a fin, just a flat plate, flat plate, and just like we have in the Illyrian, you know, it's we have a fiberglass plate, but it looks like a fish. It looks like a fish fin, and it goes down, and the point of it points straight down. That's that's what Finisterre had too. And what about this centerboard business? What exactly is it all about? We never thought of the board as being something that was that was helpful, except going upwind. Oh, interesting. Huh. Because the, most of the ballast is in the is in the keel, so you know when you, the centerboard was just a flat, you know, galvanized plate. Yeah. And, and so, so when you pull that up, it's, it doesn't make any more difference to your stability than if you were standing up or sitting down at the helm. You know. Got Standing it. up is like having the board, you know, to board up. And hmm. Anyway, so um, but the boat was awesome going downwind, awesome going upwind in a breeze, and it was actually awesome going downwind and reaching in light air because you could pull the board up sure. and get rid of some of the wetted surface. Got it. 
Rod has a highly technical but plausible explanation for the power of the centerboard. Something about lowering the inertia and hence reducing the hobby horsing of a design upwind and breeze. This is classic Rod Johnstone. If you had the stability, you're better off not having the ballast far away from the axis if you're pitching. Mm-hmm. Okay. In other words, uh, if you can have a, if two boats are equally stable and one has a deep keel, the other one has a shallower keel or even a keel centerboard in terms of stability. Hmm. Uh, that uh, the, the shallow draft boat's going to go a lot better in big waves because it's less inertia. That's interesting. Huh. Huh. Put this all in perspective. Finisterre is arguably the top racing sailboat of the 20th century. Finisterre was first in class and first overall in three consecutive Bermuda races. 56, 58, 60. A feat never equaled. Think of winning the baseball triple crown three seasons in a row. Winning three Boston marathons in a row. Winning Wimbledon three times in a row. You get the picture. The third race, the 60 Bermuda race, started in light air, but is memorable for its force eight, nine gale with hurricane force gusts recorded. Many boats went into survival mode, hove to, laying a hull with bear poles or running off dragging stern lines. Through it all, Finisterre carried sail and never stopped racing under her number three jib, deeply reefed main and full mezzen, with sheets eased slightly to keep moving through heavy seas. She had many other racing successes offshore, notably in the SORC, where she won the Miami Nassau race in 57 and 58. This rather small, 38-foot length overall, beamy, bronze centerboard yawl combines speed, especially in light air, with seaworthiness and comfort in a great racing boat in all conditions. But as Carlton Mitchell said, he was most happy about sailing just for cruising. He said, quote, It was as a cruising boat that I felt Fenestier was truly a success. She was comfortable, easy to sail shorthanded, and her shallow draft made gunk holing possible. One of the iconic designs derived from Finisterre was the dolphin. Not the dolphin of Harrisoff, but the dolphin of Bill Shaw, one of the earliest mass-produced fiberglass pocket cruisers. When Bill Shaw, an SNS alumnus, chose his own shop's Finisterre designs for the boat that he would use as the model for the Shaw 24, he didn't know that the Finisterre heritage packaged small in the form of a boat called Trina, would win 17 consecutive races. This caught the attention of George O'Day, a 60s fiberglass sailing entrepreneur from Fall River, Mass., who told Olin Stevens he wanted a, quote, fiberglass junior ocean racer along Trina's lines. That was the Dolphin birth certificate. See the letter in the photo section of the episode. This was the impetus for MORC, Midget Ocean Racing Club, a hotbed for design innovation in the next 15 years. And in the late 60s, Shaw went to be the designer for Pearson, launching hundreds of popular centerboard boats through well into the 1980s. And there's a postscript to Finisterre. The next time a truly traditionally shaped fiberglass boat won the new Purple race would be the 2014 race, when the Bermuda 40 the old Finisterre shape sharpened a bit, was the winner of the St. David's Lighthouse Division. The boat was Actia, owned by Mike and Connie Cohn, 60 years after the birth of Finisterre. Phew, that's a lot of racing. Let's take a breath. Let's go cruising. That was the impetus behind the owner of the cousin who saw his dream boat on the mooring in Maine and bought it on the spot. That boat is Fidelio, and that buyer is Charles T. Townsend, who everyone calls Chuck. I was fortunate to find Chuck battening down the hatches of his Vero Beach, Florida home in advance of yet another 2020 
season hurricane by the name of ETA. We said at the beginning, this is our first audience-inspired podcast. I got this idea to do Fidelio from the Connors of Noank. Carol, navigator tactician of the Fidelio team, had sent me a picture of her sailing off Block Island. More on that later. With all five sails of a classic y'all flying. I couldn't wait to hear the story. The life story of Fidelio, quite different. Birthplace, completely different. A German yard next to the famous Abiking and Rasmussen yard in Hamburg, Germany. Dark, cold, wet, northern Germany. But with a great nautical heritage. Fidelio had had four owners before Chuck. But nobody seems to remember who they were. Just as we did in Model Classics Instant Classic, we let Chuck run. He was an interviewee that just took the ball and went with it. Remind me of the affable Texan Chuck LeMahieu back in August when we did Model Classics Instant Classics. Now we have Chuck Townsend, former Commodore of the New York Yacht Club, media mogul, and classic aficionado extraordinaire. Chuck's years in the media business made him an easy interview subject. Chuck's story of how he got into sailing is remarkably like that of Carlton Mitchell's. Take a listen. I'm sitting there and I have nothing doing, right? All my friends are gone over in Vienna. I have nothing doing. And uh, I talked to my dad and he said, you know, why don't you call Dick Bertram? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, tell him that uh, you, you're, you continue to be interested in sailing because it's new and family ties. Mm-hmm. So I called Dick and he said, well, come on down to Miami and uh, uh, I've started Bertram Yachts and, uh, you know, you, and, and I sail and I would love to have you down. Mm. And Huey Long and I, we were sailing on the blah, blah, blah. So I got... I didn't know Dick until I went to Miami in 1967, mm-hmm. and uh, and then we had he, he he was sort of a Zen-like character. Uh, I, I I I did not ever never Zen, met him myself, so I don't know Zen-like character. And he was early into to uh, drugs. You know, I didn't even know what a drug was mm-hmm. particularly, but you know, he would come. He was in Miami. He was in Miami, yeah. Yeah, no, this is all Miami. Yeah. So I lived in Miami, not too far from him. He lived uptown, I lived downtown. And I, I sailed with him, I sailed with Huey Long, but I sailed locally, and I couldn't own anything. You know, I just crewed, but I was like professional crew. Mm-hmm. And uh, long story short, he told me about... Carlton Mitchell. I, mm. I never, I never heard of Carlton Mitchell mm-hmm. right? and Finisterre, and he would tell me these stories. So Finisterre, I couldn't even picture mm-hmm. Finisterre. Right. To me, she must have been ninety feet, right? Mm-hmm. And Mitch and Bobby and you know and so and but he would just regale. He was just a world's greatest salesman, mm-hmm. and. So I heard these stories sitting on up at night and this and the other thing and blah, blah, blah. And then I, you know, as, as life would have it, I go from being advertising director of Bertram Yachts to a publisher's representative to the publisher of Motorboating and Sailing in three years. Huh. Was that so? 1976, I arrived. I mean, it was, it was many more years down there, but so I, I arrive in New York City as the publisher of Motorboating and Sailing, and one of the first people I meet at a New York Yacht Club function I was invited to was Carlton Mitchell. Oh, that's wild! And I said to Carlton, you know, I'm Chuck. Tan- oh, Dick told me. Oh, Dick, you know, Dick, you know, blah blah blah. So, mm-hmm. you know. How small is that world when you think about the full circle? The irony is that Dick Bertram, the SNS of offshore motorboat racing, the champion of Ray Hunt's Deep V designs, was a great buddy of Carlton Mitchell. Who was his wingman, Dick? Who did he have as his navigator in powerboat races? Yep, Carlton Mitchell. 
Carlton diversified to power early. In fact, in his later cruising years, it was Carlton Mitchell who championed the trawler style as the ultimate motor cruising design. Carlton was a renaissance man, be it sail or power. But let's go back to Chuck's tale. Chuck gave us a story of how he got the boat. We were in Maine when I was Commodore of New York Yacht Club for a regatta in 2008, uh, Club Cruise regatta, and uh, we were in, uh, one of the stops was in uh, Rockland, mm-hmm. and uh, we took a, uh, wanted to go up to Rockport, and uh, took a, you know, a center console up just for fun, and we were entering the Rockport Harbor 2008, and I saw this gorgeous mm-hmm. yaw, and, you know, the lines just you make you stop sure. dead in your tracks. It clearly wasn't at Concordia. Sure. Much fatter. It's, you yep. know, as... as uh, as uh, Carlton Mitchell used to say, his uh, you know his he called the Finisterre his watermelon. She mm-hmm. was kind of blunt-ended and you know chubby and mm-hmm. and uh, but beautiful lines, uh, gorgeous S and S lines. So I just happened to yeah. see the boat. I said to everybody, you know, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna work on buying that. Uh, SNS yaw, and I'm, you know, I'm going to sail uh, classics. Yep, yep, know? yep. And everybody, so the young guys say, yeah, 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 and and the Paul and Carols of the world sort of look at me with a smile and say, sure. oh, I think it's about time. Right, so right, we, right. We, you know, we get serious about this. So I did, I did work out a deal to buy her, and you know, she was pretty. And I have to say, you know, in 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 typical Maine right. shape for a wooden boat right. at Rockport, uh, uh, you know, they kept some nice paint on her and mm-hmm. whatnot. And so I, I, the first we we kept her up there the first winter. I bought it in the fall. We kept her up there, and then uh, Taylor started working on the boat in the course. <laughs> yep. Every time, you know, so the, I mean, so she was built by, uh, not Abikin, was built by Matthiasen and Paulsen ah. in Arnis, Germany, right next to Abikin. Ah. And she was an immediate post-World War boat. Uh-huh. So, you know, they, they were struggling to come back alive, you know. Now, to, now which came first? So, so Finisterre came in 54. So did Fidelio yeah, come first? 56. Okay, so 56. 56. Okay. Yeah. So two years later. And Finisterre was built in the, in, in the U.S. Peterson's, yeah. Peterson's in Old Saybrook, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. So, uh, you know, this was... Uh, hmm. And so it was a magnificent piece of construction. Yeah. And the point that Taylor said, you won't believe this, Chuck, that is 10 million screws, but every screw comes out mm-hmm. and the entire inside of the boat just unscrews and comes out perfectly. Huh. And so, you know, what was exposed then was something absolutely amazing that hmm. Finisterre didn't have. And this is sort of, you know, the German hallmark, German Danish. So, mm-hmm. if, you know, right on the, the Scandinavian line sure. is our niece. And if you think of the, uh, the the boats coming out of Denmark and whatnot, they all have huge fiberglass. Yep. have complete grid systems. Yes. In. When yes. we pulled the interior out of out of uh, Fidelio, she had a bronze grid huh. in through the entire boat. Wow. That everything was mated to, so she was absolutely Tight. stiff. Wow. As life could be, but wow. we had a lot of rod. Fidelio is well known as one of the most consistent boats on the CYA circuit, with piles of hardware to show for it. I'm just going to summarize years of experience. The thing was a rocket. Wow. And then I started thinking back to my days. And and how did you race? How did you race? Did you, when you raced, you raced under PHRF or what was the race? No, we raced under CRF. CRF. Okay. So you just. We would race under CRF Mm -hmm. in in 
classic yacht. Got it. And then we would race under PHR, PHR. If you're right, in... Uh, Block Island Racer, that type of thing. Or, 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 or ORC, I can't remember. Yeah. But okay. So for Block Island Race Week and the big regattas, we would sail, uh, I, I'm thinking PHR yep. F Spinnaker, right? Yep, that's what I would think, yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we brought, I, we, I mean, I have, you know, I no longer was interested in collecting trophies, and I started giving these trophies away this boat won just everything wow. we entered it into wow. but it really was that amazing design that is so unique to her mm-hmm. with the big beam and this giant bronze uh, board uh, the board center board yeah that you learn which is the right angle i mean to go up when we would outsail keel boats upwind mm-hmm. when we got her tuned yep. just right. Yep. So Paul Connor is trimming the main for me, which he did on all of my big race boats. You know, you had to be tender with her because, you know, you couldn't overpower her with that main or she mm-hmm. wouldn't point. Right. So we, you know, we we trail that main down a little low on the traveler. Mm-hmm. She hit down, so we're sailing on the back third. Or, yep whatever amount that we got a good bite on her but then my god it was just a pointing mm-hmm. machine and just as just a, a, a mm-hmm. delight to mm-hmm. sail i i bought fidelio because i fell in love with her yeah and i, I bought her number two because my core friends were long in the tooth and it was time to get off a of carbon fiber and yeah. you know gentle people which we did but of course incre- you know the con is incredibly competitive yes yes they are yes they are we yes. pressed that girl for all she was worth yep. up and down the coastline so right. we had a ball with mm. her don't get me wrong there have been some wild rides and some close calls carol connor gives us the story of the mr toad's wild ride down the backside of block island during a race week being advised by no less than Tom Whitten. Well, I can, I can, I, I keep a log, and so I went back and found the one at Block Island Race Week um, in 2015. Around the island race. Around the island race. And um, on Tuesday, it's, I'll just read it to you. It's not very sure. long. Sure, it's sure. Great. It's no. windy. Read, read uh, it, read it as long as you like. This is, this is for you to, 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 to talk. All right, all right. It's around the island and whatever. Um, we started eighth out of nine classes at eleven forty. We beat up the beach, quote uh, a close reach to southeast light. Right before we set the big shoot, it's blowing twenty to twenty two. Then we had a good jibe and and it really started to blow. We rolled a couple deep ones and took down the shoot. It's blowing steady, 30 to 35. I actually have a picture of the, um, the knot meter. Um, we put up the A-sail, which was the smallest we had. What a ride. 40 knots. Ooh. We blew it out, up with the number three. We were the last boat to have a shoot-up. Some quit and others out of control. Great crew here. The only way. The jib reached to 1BI. It's really rough. A long beat to the finish, half a mile southwest of the harbor. We had a bit of rum at the mooring, back to our powerboat for tea, and a bit of a rest, dot, dot, dot. Results, third again. Aha, that was the Tom Whitten, head of North at the time. No problem, blow up a chute, we'll give you another one. Oh boy, all those years with Dennis Connors, meaning Connor with an S, taught him how to coach Chuck and the Connors. In Maine... Carol, who the crew called Queen of the Cockpit, as navigator and tactician, went back to her log to describe the move that, for me, coins the word horizon job. Let's listen. Yeah, I remember. I remember a good race. It was, um, we were racing, um, let's see, we were in Maine, and it was one of the feeder, it was a race before Egamagan, maybe. Okay. Um. And we were going down the Fox Island thoroughfare, I think. But before we got there, there wasn't very much wind. And we had a whole class. We had a huge class. We were all sort of split up. And 
and I said to Chuck, you know what? I think I got a spot. And we went through this island in this pile of rocks, and we pulled up our, I said, we got to pull up the centerboard because we would definitely hit something. And we pulled up our centerboard, and we sort of ghosted through this little sort of Mm-hmm. way almost. It was really narrow. We got through, and we got this big gust of wind, and off we went, and we set the chute. We were so far ahead. We must have been a mile ahead of, of the next boat. And they were all going through sort of the normal channel area, and uh, that was pretty exciting. That's cool. That. When I heard this story, I had images of Carol taking 38-foot classics down main waterfalls. But an ace navigator she is, and well-known in the classic ranks for it. From 2008 into 2019, Fidelia was a happy ship with a loyal crew. Finally, in 2019, the crew totted up their sailing injuries, and Chuck decided to sell Fidelio. It meant finding a new home for her after 63. The old girl was ready for boating Social Security. But before we go... What's happened to these two SNS cousins? Where are they in their senior days, 66 and 64 this year? The Finister story I can really only follow going through online brokerage ads in Southern Europe on the Med. The old lady is kicked around. In older age, she has been neglected, passed around like an old rusting car in a New England family. I know how hard it is to keep wooden boats up in any climate. She's been many colors. She needs some surgery. She's drooping. How ironic that the apple of the eye of a famous blue water sailor would live out her senior years being passed around, paid for in euros, from one set of hands to the other, like a famous athlete whose time has passed. In the meantime, Fidelio passed to a new owner in Maine, a gentleman sailor in Castine. She's in good hands, Chuck felt, but... The new owner didn't want the container of racing sails, he said. I won't be needing those, said new owner. Thank you, Chuck and the Connors, for bringing this story alive. And look in the photo section on the website for Carol's great pictures. So that wraps season one. Season two starts next time. In the holidays. We'll be back next time with a story of a famous bird from 1938, first forgotten, then rediscovered, then redone in time for the Six Meter Worlds in Newport in 2010, which my memory serves was a glittering, quite windy affair featuring the boat of gentlemen, the Six Meter. Spoiler alert! Go to the bar of the Sawanica Corinthian Yacht Club in Oyster Bay, and you'll see her former rear end. I'm very excited to be doing this episode with my cousin, Peter Taylor, seven years my junior, but together we are the senior sailors in a family of marine types going back to Scotland in the 1600s. We hope to have one of our sport's most illustrious nautical historians participate, so long as I pronounce his name right. So, he only lives down the street from me here on the island of Manhattan. All in the family is the next session. How appropriate. It's the pod production, talking about the fastest six meter drawn in its day, and part of what I call the cult of the six meter. And don't forget to see the 20,000 plus photos online in the Carlton Mitchell Collection on the Mystic Seaport Museum website. It will take you off to the Caribbean on your own. To all of our group of listeners, thank you for subscribing on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate your participation. Tell your friends. See our email spots on Team One Newport and Winchecks Media websites. The same thanks goes for all of our speakers in Season 1. It's your stories that make this Conversations with Classic Boats, the podcast that talks to the boats that talk to you. Look for a Christmas edition to listen on your travelers or wherever you are. This is the beauty of podcasts, a.k.a. narrative audio. It goes wherever you go. 
We wish you all a safe holiday season. It's fair sailing. Stay well. And check in with Conversations with Classic Boats. Our producer is Ned Darling. This is your host, Tom Darling, saying stay around and tune in to Season 2. Thanks for listening to Conversations with Classic Boats. And we'll roll the old chariot along. We'll roll the old chariot along. We'll roll the old chariot along. And we'll all hang on behind. And a drop of Nelson's blood wouldn't do us any harm. A drop of Nelson's blood wouldn't do us any harm. A drop of Nelson's blood wouldn't do us any harm. And we'll all...